I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. You know, since we posted the first podcast back in June of 2015, there have been 80-plus Poetry Spoken Here podcasts. This current episode you're about to hear is our annual uh, review podcast. It's not a best of, it's merely a selection that demonstrates the diversely interesting and talented poets who have been featured in the year 2018. 2018 was a good year for us. We received uh, some accolades. Player.fm named Poetry Spoken Here as one of the best poetry podcasts of 2018. And Feedspot included us in a list they call the, quote, Top 30 Poetry Podcast You Must Subscribe and Listen To. So please tell your friends that uh, Feedspot thinks they really should subscribe and listen to us. In 2019, we'll become the official audio home for the Uno Muno author series and poetry festival that will be occurring in Spain during 2019. But let's get to the poetry. First up is our youngest feature yet, Alexandra Contreras Montesano. She'll be reading her poem from Burlington, Vermont, where she is a national student poet for the northeastern section of the country. There are five national student poets, and we're very happy that we could have Alexandra featured on the podcast. A lot of my poetry deals with sort of the nostalgia for Mexico because I haven't been able to go back in a while. Um, So this poem is called Puebla, and it's about the town I lived in when I was living in Mexico. All right. Puebla. Puebla is chocolate dipped. Syrupy, as I spoon it out of the close-knit town surrounding Mexico City. I just want to gulp it down. Suck the marrow from the cattle that get leaner every year. It smells good. Being home. Or being in a place that was once home. I can't help but hold my breath. Abducting into my lungs because the wind here is a different flavor than the wind there. I thought the thing I missed most was the heat. The sizzle your bare feet make against the packed dirt of the evening road, but I was wrong because I am intoxicated by the way my grandma casps her hands to my heart, like I never left. Puebla tastes salty as I lick it from my top lip, brushing it from the corners of my eyes, letting it fall, absorb into my skin. I know I can't come back until the next thunderstorm season. It gets easier to come and harder to leave. I wish I could stay in this town where everything feels like cayenne when you mix it with just the right amount of lime. It burns, but you laugh until the sour. And now West Virginia poet Kirk Judd will be reading a poem that's a title poem from his latest book, My People was music. Kirk has performed this poem all around the country and in fact around the world, often with old-timey musicians picking and fiddling behind him. It goes over very well with audiences, and here it is. This was my greatest hit, actually. Um, This this poem has a a weird history. It's been all around the world. It's been used in 
Canada and, and Brazil and, and uh, been translated into Portuguese. It, it's, it's a, it has a long history, and, and people always called the poem My People Was Music, which is not the title. So when I decided to put this last collection together, I thought, well, I'll just use that line as the title of the book. Maybe people will remember it. The title of the, the poem itself is The High Country Remembers Her Heritage. My people was music. Their lives were poems told in the old language of earth and season, rain and sun, field and sweat, stream and blood. My people was music. They come to this country in fiddle cases throwed on the tide. They burst on the shore and notes was their babies and they spread over the land, moving up the valleys and the hollows with the piping of the wind, moving up the rivers and the runs with the rhythm of the spawn, the pulse of blood on membrane beating, coming home to live, coming home to die. Coming home to live. Coming home. My people was music. They throwed down roots and growed up families and stayed. Stand with your heart in the earth and your hand in the sky. And hear them in the hum of the planets. In the songs of the stars that carry the cadence of time. Hear your granddaddy in the high fiddle string. Your rogue uncle in the banjo ring. Your button shoe aunt in the corner guitar keeping time. Keeping time, keeping time, hear them in there, because that's where they is. My people was music. They didn't have no politics nor economics. They didn't write no newspapers nor history books. That's not how their legacy is kept. Their lives are the poems of my soul and the songs of my breath. My people was music. And if you want to know, you've got to be able to hear. Now, Michael Dumanis teaches at Bennington College and is the editor of the Bennington Review. Since he teaches, I had to ask him something about what he likes to tell students when he wants to tell them how they should write poems, how they could write poems. And uh, it turns out he had a poem of his along for the uh, interview that he read and then was able to use it as a demonstration of his views about how poetry happens. And I, together, I think they make a, a really nice package, and that's what you're going to hear right now. So this is a poem called The Empire of Light. The baby pulls my wrist into his mouth. The baby wants to eat my face. So does the dog, the one that I don't have, who lazes at the razor edge of vision, whose curved shadow when I'm still flat on my back, opening up like a gift of the new morning clouds over me. The sister asks me to apologize for 1985 to 93. I screen all calls from the persistent bank. The baker calls. The baker wants her pie back. Even the fan, worrying the air from its perch on the ceiling, sucks breath from my lung. The future wants its diaper changed. I stroll it past the drooping wisteria to the family dollar where I contemplate our next move. In the suburban zoo, we gawk at cages. We are surrounded by musical notes of bright weather. The panda turns its back on us like an unhappy god. 
I take the baby home. He'll live forever, I'm almost sure. He laughs like fire laughs, inexorable heat, blue flame unraveling. I have barely begun the day, I think, towards evening. The baby presses at my collarbone. You know what makes us happy? The whole world. We're swaying to a prelude by Ravel. We're waving goodbye to the empire of light. Our destiny is red, purple, and black. Before we were talking about uh, the idea of a poem, I think that's from Jerry Graham, the poem starting from A, going to B, but somewhere in the middle there's an X factor. Sure. And could you use one of those poems or maybe both whatever to, to talk Absolutely. about that idea so the, it's so a really neat idea when I was a student um, the poet Jory Graham said this thing that really stayed with me um, where she said you know guys if you start with point A and you have this point B in mind that you want to get to in the poem that you will write and you sit down at, at point A and you write the lines that you have to write in order to get to point B and you get to point B you've expressed yourself but you haven't actually written a poem. The poem is not is not the thing you had in mind before you started writing which gets you to point B. If however starting at point A in the process of writing you discover a point X that maybe way past point B, maybe in a completely different direction, maybe maybe a giant swerve in the middle of the poem. Um, that journey to that point X that you never would have reached, that you never would have discovered if you hadn't started on this journey and noticed an opportunity to get to point X, that journey, that process, that's your poem. And... Um, and that really stayed with me because the poem, first of all, the cement of the poem was a journey. The poem was a kind of discovery. The poem wasn't just expressing something that I couldn't express another way, but the poem was actually the only way to find the thing that I was trying yeah. to express. And the language, because there's nothing else in a poem, a poem is a machine made of words, right? So there's, no, there's nothing else other than these Good. words that can lead you there, right? So, so I knew... Um, I, I knew that what mattered was writing lines that could lead me somewhere that was a breakthrough, that was a surprise. Yeah. Um, I would say that The Empire of Light, the first poem that I'm describing, mm -hmm. fits this more in the sense that the second poem, um, um, Annunciation, I always knew where it would end, right? I knew my, my son wandered out, right? Um, and said this incredibly philosophical thing while p possibly sleepwalking, right? Um, <laughs> and that that um, made me realize that he had this a significantly richer interior life than I than I okay. previously yeah, yeah. <laughs> discovered. I knew that the poem needed to end there. There, I didn't know what the journey was, and so I think I was trying to find my way to the point that I knew the poem had to. And with yeah. that's not com that's not a common thing. Mm -hmm. In this case, um, in the Empire of Light, um, what I knew is that my son kept biting me. Right, right. He um, the baby pulls you. my wrist yeah. into his mouth. The baby wants to eat my face. Right, each line logically follows, or you know, or yeah. there's a, there's a connection between each line and the line before mm -hmm. it. But I don't know where I'm going, you know, um, because after I say the baby wants to eat my face. I start thinking about an imaginary dog that, um, that, you don't that, have, that I don't have that may also want to eat my face. And then I think about everybody else who wants something from me. And I think initially I might have had a line in this poem 
I, I know that at some point I had written on the page, everyone wants something from me. Mm. You know, and I think that, and I think actually um, that was the third line at some point. It was the baby pulls my wrist into his mouth. The baby wants to eat my face. Everyone wants something from yeah. me. And then yeah, I listed yeah. the dog and the baker and the banker and, and the sister. And, yeah. you know. um, and, um, but, yeah. but I realized that I didn't need the line. You don't need that generalization. No, just get on with it. Right? And that's actually yeah. another phrase from like, from studying poetry in an academic setting, in my case, where, where I would have teachers refer to the lines you need to write, but then take out as scaffolding. Mm. And I find the idea of scaffolding very interesting, though one can also argue that, you know, um, the scaf- sometimes the scaffolding may be the most interesting thing, right? But, um, but in general, as a kind of default, right? Yeah. The, thinking about a poem as a kind of construction, Right as a kind of building, as a building that consists of various rooms, right, and um, and then you need to, you need it to stand up, so you need to build things around it, and yeah. once it stands up, you can identify what those things are and take them out, and so so that was the genesis for a lot of those lines. But then, um, then you got to the zoo, right? and then and then I start walking, which is exactly it's like I'm taking a journey, right? I mean, then I'm walking, um, and at some point, the poem turns for me quite. Yeah, quite somber, you know, where, where when I realize that the panda in the zoo is an unhappy god, right, question of mortality rises in the poem. The idea of thinking of the baby um, who is constantly changing is the future, right, as both a constant and a variable and something that, that changes over time, but also as something that is finite but seems so infinite, right, um, gets me to he'll live forever, I'm almost sure, right? And then and then it's about destiny. And so and then it's about and then I'm dancing with this baby pressed at my collarbone and I'm listening to music and and the sun is setting, right? And our destiny is red, purple and black. So that's actually a really good example of what I'm saying where yeah. where I didn't know that, that line surprised me when I wrote it. You know, poets live very interesting lives and Cheryl Denise lives with an intentional community and raises sheep. She had a poem with her that I had never heard uh, on that subject matter, a panic attack. So I had to ask her to read it, and I think it's worth putting it up here for you in our special review show. Panic attack. My husband leans toward me, eyes soft as summer, waiting for me to speak, wanting to fix me, as if I am an engine or leaky faucet, as if he can wrench the words out, rearrange my thoughts, and piece me back together. Like someone scratching inside my skull, I cry, a sharp wind scraping my skin, a slow-motion funnel cloud, a lightning struck. My hands, my mind, my stomach, singed pieces everywhere, flying in the kitchen, the living room, outside the picture window, wavering above the grass. Someone tosses me away, piece by piece, as if it's a game, as if they're in charge, ordering me to sit down, be quiet. I like to do as I'm told. I want to pass, but I failed grade two and liked it. Easier the second time with the new kids who didn't know about that afternoon I wet my pants during math. The second year, I knew some answers and waved my arm. My husband keeps looking at me, keeps probing. I want him to stop. I don't tell him how I pulled over on my trip to Alora last fall, wrote him a letter, 
instructions, permission on how and when to leave me. How I kept it three months in the glove compartment, then tore it up, buried it in gas station trash. What I do say is all the colors turn off and my insides jabber and tell lies and my dark red meat twitches like I am full of candy bars and coffee, like I need to sprint around my old high school track, find the mistake. Meanwhile, all the pieces fly farther and farther, dispersing in the hayfield, slow and impossible as that puzzle in the back of my second grade class my teacher wanted me to finish. The pieces must fit together. I gather as many as I can. I don't know where I begin, where I end. My husband and my teacher settle together again at the big desk in the back, waiting. Liz All teaches in New Hampshire. And uh, when we were talking about how poetry happens, she had some things to say about how sometimes you start in one direction and the unexpected comes up and the poem ends up going someplace else. In the course of her reading, she had a poem about something from the space program that had the same kind of thing happen. Yeah, so this one's not from this book. It's from a collection of poems I've been working on for over 20 years, um, inspired by the U.S. space program, actually. And um, on Friday, the solstice, actually, it will mark the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 8, which was the first... Uh, first Apollo mission out to the moon. And they didn't land on the moon until Apollo 11. This was just to see, can we get all the stuff out there? Can we go Mm -hmm. around the dark side of the moon without getting lost in space? And can we come back and land safely? And it all went pretty fabulously. And the, uh, some people consider this actually the most historically significant, even more significant than Mm -hmm. landing on the moon Apollo missions. And this poem Mm -hmm. sort of touches on, on why Um, a famous image of the earth that was taken um, on this uh, by, by uh, one of the astronauts, Bill Anders, um, during this mission. So this is titled Image Number 14-2383, Apollo 8. Sometimes the best laid mission plan, tidy and typed in carbon triplicate, will miss something even with the laser vision of all those eyes. Sometimes the mission itself shifts as it unfolds, as you're breathless in the thrill of hitting goals no one had thought to set down on paper. For instance, if you're prepping to be the first guys to fly out to the moon, not land on it, just everything but, you'll have studied your lunar maps, the photographs snapped by the machines sent in advance, who knew only to obey the crude code with which they were programmed. And NASA will have outfitted you with all the best cameras and lenses they could find, and a list such a list of targets to capture in color and black and white, rills, craters, debris fields, potential landing sites, boulders, valleys, constellations. But your exhaustive and specific list will omit one simple thing 
and you won't realize it until on the third lunar orbit, freshly trimmed from an ellipse to a circle and heads up for the first time, you see the Earth rising improbably, fantastically, from beneath the moon's horizon. You're so well-trained that your initial impulse is to stick to mission, stick to ticking off that list everybody agreed on back there on the ground, but the Earth, the Earth is coming up over the moon, rising like the moon, like the sun, like, like nothing you have a metaphor for. You are so well-trained that you can still reach just past the mission-bound edges of that training and snap the color photographs not on the checklist, the photographs no one knew would need to be taken, the now ubiquitous whole earth, blue and borderless and feathered with clouds, dangling in the void, our precariousness, our us-ness, no longer an abstraction. Who knows what lunar ravine, what highlands or nameless Mariah lost their place in the queue so that everything we knew could shift into new focus, so we could be remade, albeit briefly, by just a glance at this first true likeness of ourselves. Finally, I was very honored that Jonathan Chaves, one of the most notable uh, contemporary translators of ancient Chinese poetry, was willing to sit down for a double episode. We talked for an hour. He had so much to say about translation, and, well, I confess I'm very interested in uh, classical Chinese poetry. In the course of our discussion, uh, we talked about a book by Kodojin, called The Old Taoist. And I thought that'd be the thing of what he talked about to put on this program. You can go back and hear them there. Episode uh, 72 and 73, that's Jonathan Chaves. And Kadojin was a Japanese poet, but he also wrote in Chinese. So in the book, The Old Taoist, Jonathan was called in to do the translations of the Chinese poems. The book is a beautiful production. I highly recommend this book. It's a beautiful production because Kadojin was also a painter. And it's just very high quality uh, work on this book. If you can find it, I would encourage you. So now let's hear Jonathan Chaves tell us a little bit about Kadojin and translation. The person who discovered Kadojin as a painter um, is Stephen Addis, who Mm -hmm. is an incredible guy. You and he would like each other very much. He is uh, a a man whose career has spanned being a folk singer to becoming one of the few Westerners who is able to do saleable works of traditional Chinese and Japanese calligraphy himself, seal carving, and so forth. And he also is a great art historian. And he discovered Kodojin, who was not that well-known in Japan. He interviewed uh, Kodojin's sister, who's still alive in her 80s or 90s. And right now, a number of the best Japanese art dealers in the West are handling Kodojin paintings, all because of him. And he got hold of a book of Kodojin's 
um, Chinese language poems, which he sent to me. And he said, here, what do you think of these? Maybe we could do an article. I started reading them. My God, this guy's fantastic. And before I knew it, I had over 200 translations. Meanwhile, Steve had been translating his haiku poems mm-hmm. because Kodojin studied haiku with Masa Okashiki, the man who coined the word haiku and is the father of modern Japanese haiku. And his haiku poems are great. Painting, great Chinese poems, great Japanese poems. I said, we've got a book. Let me go to Columbia University Press. And he said, okay, try it. So I went to the person who will remain nameless, um, who was in the right position at that time at the press. And I said, um, you know, so-and-so, this book is absolutely incredible. So she takes the book and she passes it around to a bunch of outside readers and comes back to me, Jonathan, nobody ever heard of this guy. And I said, so-and-so, when Columbus saw the new land, he didn't say, oh, crap, no one ever heard of this place. I'm turning around and going home. (laughs) It's called discovery. It's called exploration. That's exactly the point. The guy is, no one ever heard of him, and he's great. Duh. Okay, so she so reluctant, you know, I, I basically just browbeat her into publishing the book, and people love it with good reason, you know? Now, Kanchi poetry is what I've been working on most recently, um, and the book that I'm working on now, in fact, I have Stephen Addis writing about this man as a calligrapher. I'm writing about him as a Kanchi poet, and Matthew Fraley, who is an outstanding young scholar of Japanese literature who is a specialist in Kanchi now. Uh, he's at Brandeis University. His His work... I commend it to all your listeners. He's, he's really uh, amazing. Um, we three are working a book on Yanagawa Seigan. Seigan, writing in the, uh, let's say, 1840s into the 1850s, is definitely one of the best kanji poets. I already have more than 100 of his poems, and I, I love them. I think they're some of the best that I've done. Um, the... It is amazing that you have, and I actually cannot think of a real parallel to this, where you have poets writing in a language which is not their native language, producing poetry of this caliber, worthy of standing in some cases side by side with the masterpieces of the home country, China. That's how good some of them are. Uh, But no one has been looking at it. The Chinese are not interested because they say, oh, the Japanese can't really write Chinese poetry. And the Japanese scholars say, ah, it's not really Japanese literature because it's in right, Chinese. Yeah. So, you know, so I come along. You know, just I'm just like an ordinary American guy from Brooklyn. So I don't have a dog in, in the race, so to speak. And I read them and I say, you know what? These are great. Yeah. I love them. So I'm going to do them. Yeah, I want to mention... Uh... If it's not clear to you who are listening, this book, Old Taoist, uh, which is poetry of Kadojin, uh, being a Chinese, uh, Japanese poet who wrote Chinese poetry, the first, roughly first half of the book is his Japanese haiku, which Stephen Addis translated. 
and Jonathan, who we're talking to, did the back part with a lovely essay about him and how he relates to uh, Chinese poetry and then translated a bunch of Kadojin's poems. So it's in, in the meanwhile, in the middle, on some very higher quality paper are some lovely reproductions of Kadojin's art, which is outstanding. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and you're listening to the Poetry Spoken Here annual retrospective slash review show. I hope you've enjoyed these highlights, and maybe they have motivated you to go back and listen, or listen again to uh, some of these wonderful poets. Here's hoping you'll join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mondling. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.